The Cuban Missile Crisis is distant enough now that it can only be read as a kind of campy fun. All those slim Harvard boys with their Brahmin accents and J-Press suits, they all seem like relics of prehistory. So it stands to reason that we feel like their problems and their politics and the prosumer quality of their munitions and especially their telephones, and crucially, the danger that they faced, were similarly just elements of some Porcellian stage play where the boys wore coconut bras and they all sang Buttercup. I mean, Castro was such a funny, furry little bear with his Groucho cigar and his coffee can hat, and Khrushchev, stomping around trying to kill the wabbit, standing on two dictionaries to marvel at the electric washer, how could these silly men have posed any real threat to the world? And then there's our own John Kennedy, long carved in stone on the tabloid Rushmore, an ancient Greek, a hero who guards us even now while we sleep, dreaming of a greater Martin Sheen still in the White House, reading hard books. He liked keeping us safe. This was all so long ago they may as well have been in togas. But just for context, my dad had his 41st birthday during the missile crisis. It wasn't that long ago. I still have some of his suits from that period and they're killer. There was nothing inevitable about the outcome. None of those guys were that much smarter than you or me or Ricky Gervais or James Franco. The fact is that even the smartest people aren't that smart. People are idiots. I used to think you had to be smart to be the president. And then Reagan got elected and even at age 12 I could tell he wasn't smart. George Bush the elder had the kind of intelligence of a school headmaster that gets pranked the same way every Halloween and never sees it coming. Clinton was Rotarian smart, but George W? Do you remember all the commentariat at the time saying, George W sounds like an idiot, and he acts like an idiot, but don't underestimate him. You have to be super smart to be a president. Ha! What a laugh! Turns out not! All those presidents and CEOs we tacitly assume are probably super secret smart, even when they're visibly flummoxed and have stupid in their eyes, are actually just exactly as stupid as they appear. This is obvious, but at the same time, we think things like the Cuban Missile Crisis got solved by some smart heroes. It was probably just an accident that all those numb nuts didn't end the world. We've got an election in three weeks, and I'm writing and recording this intro at 2.45 a.m. on Wednesday morning, and I honestly cannot confidently make any contemporary reference for fear that two days from now, when it airs, we could be at war with Spain. The current president of the United States, who is undoubtedly showering his underlings right now in Big Mac-scented Corona spittle from atop his Hustler magazine shoe lifts, has, among his legion of obsequious carbuncular toadies, some poor Air Force officer who didn't ask to be there, carrying the phone number of the apocalypse in a handbag. There aren't enough checks and balances in the world to have that be the unquestioned state of affairs. I wouldn't trust the nuclear codes to any public figure, with the exception of Carl Sagan, who's dead, and maybe the guys from Flight of the Concords. There aren't even any remotely smart people in the room this time. There don't seem to be any smart people left in the world. And worst of all, they're all wearing terrible suits. Let us hope the will of good men is enough to counter the terrible strength of this thing that was put in motion. Today on Friendly Fire, 13 Days. 
Welcome to Friendly Fire, the uh, war movie podcast that will review this movie and do the other things before the decade is out. Not because it is easy, but because it is hard. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. Bravo. Please talk like that the entire episode, Ben. <laughs> I'll slip in and out. I'm John Roderick, and that was great. I was up all night thinking about which which Kennedy quote I was going to mash into that spot, and uh, it wound up being one not in the movie. Which um, I read that this movie was like based on a lot of like actual like Nixon like tapes of the proceedings in the Oval Office and They've stuff. They've got tapes. They do. They have the tapes. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I wonder if they still run those tape machines. I like to think so. <laughs> Boy, you hope so. In a yeah. perfect world, but I think they I think they all got taken out. I think they figured it out. It, it, it would be interesting to have audio of what was going on at, on Fox News from moment to moment in this modern era. A dictaphone is a large device, though. Like, you you notice it in a room. Yeah. Most people would, anyway. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't move, so certain people uh, won't be right. able to pick it up because their visual system is based on movement. Right. These were built into some cabinets, I think. There was a moment in this film that uh, that I sort of understood the whole... <laughs> the whole Kevin Costner-ness of it. <laughs> And it was early on, early on we're following O'Donnell into work. We get to meet his family. We we follow him in his awesome car as he pulls into into his parking spot and then walks in and uh, and has a brief conversation with Jackie Onassis. And in this conversation, I was fairly confident that Jackie wanted to fuck O'Donnell. It was very very flirty, wasn't it? And like I feel like that's that's this movie. <laughs> like, who the fuck is O'Donnell? He, he like he's our main he's our main character in a movie about the Cuban Missile Crisis and and the Kennedys. That's kind of the question that a lot of the uh, ex cabinet members asked when they saw this movie was, who the fuck is O'Donnell? And I think it's crucial, guys, that that it's Jackie O that kind of knights him for the film in this mm-hmm. moment. Like mm-hmm. like she gives him the credibility of being in it by giving us a scene with her right up front. I, I felt the same way about that moment. His casual banter with her, where he was like basically saying, like, you're a naughty girl, Jackie. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh it was like, oh, well, I guess this guy's the most important person in American government. And right. uh, and also like gossip, gossip magazine fodder. And who is this sexy man? Right. It turns out that the actual the actual character did go to Harvard with Bobby Kennedy, was close to the family, did. He was present during the events depicted. But but as you said, Ben, McNamara and other important actual people who were on the <laughs> who who were on the security council and whatnot um all said like he was the appointment secretary he wasn't really in the room so <laughs> this film makes the case that he would like talk over kennedy if he had a point to <laughs> he did that several times right like he was like listen listen jack you know like <laughs> sit down and let the big boys talk 
the legend of him, the legend of O'Donnell is what we see in this film. And then I did a little research like you, John, about him. And like, he's legendarily someone who was on Air Force One during Lyndon Johnson swearing in as standing next to Jackie O and Lyndon Johnson. But crucially, he's the guy that's cropped out of the photo. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's O'Donnell. That's O'Donnell... with everything that you read about him, like that is that is such a representation of him. Like he's close enough to be involved in everything, but he's the guy that's crapped out of the photo. And here's a movie where that that asks the question, what if he were in every photo? Mm. <laughs> he's like who you would wonder about if you were if you were like Facebook stalking Jackie Onassis because you were like kind of interested in dating her, but you wanted to like see like who she'd maybe been involved in in the past. And right. you see that her prof pick is her standing there on Air Force One. You're like, well, I know that she wasn't really with LBJ, but who's that arm around her? Uh, who's, who's got his hand on her shoulder there? Yeah. Who's that? I had never seen that before, Adam, but if you if you Google that photo... Yeah, there, I did. There are 600 examples of the famous one, and then there's that one where it's just a slightly whiter shot, and there he is, O'Donnell, sticking his, his – he's standing right there. He's touching her arm. Yeah. I never saw that <laughs> yeah. before. Wow. Yeah. They need to be able to stick their necks out. What this film does is right the wrong of O'Donnell erasure. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, this movie made me think a lot about – what makes it similar to and what separates it from Path to War, which is set in a White House not too distant from this, was made like that movie was made two years after this one. You could almost call it a spiritual sequel to 13 Days, but they, they feel super different. Like they, they feel like like radically different in a lot of ways also. Yeah, we've been watching a lot of movies about this uh, era in American policy and, and politics. And uh, it's really becoming super interesting to connect them all together into one big um, ziggurat. Like last week's show flight of the intruder arguably is part of the family of um, every Vietnam movie is, is an extension of the Kennedy policies of 1962 and watching them kind of tumble uh, in, in, into shape all these different perspectives. It's really, um, even as somebody who's spent a long time thinking about th- that era, just seeing these movies in quick succession, it's, it's a real education. The funny thing about O'Donnell, and we learned this in watching Path to War, which is that, um, you know, George Ball in that movie was another character that seemed to have an an outside or an inordinate amount of influence in the room, given his actual uh, title. Like George Wall in the Johnson administration was some kind of undersecretary of state, and why was he being considered so? so much uh, why do they keep what asking him what he thinks he yeah, had right. that drunk at a party confidence too that's how you know you're comfortable and o'donnell also seems to be like he's an appointment secretary why is he even in the room but george ball 
had a had what was uh, later called the ball rule of power, and his his rule. This is this is uh, like the nattering nabobs of negativism. <laughs> he said nothing propinks like propinquity. That's something that I could hear slurred through his teeth. <laughs> you could see though that 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 rule of power doesn't. It doesn't get spoken about as much these days because no one knows what propinquity means. But nothing propinks like propinquity is a joke coinage that means the more direct access you have to the president, the greater your power, regardless of what your actual title in government is. That makes a ton of sense. There's a case to be made that even though O'Donnell is sort of derided by Sorensen and um, and McNamara as being like a nobody. He did go to college with RFK. He is Irish Catholic. He's one of these Harvard smarty pantses. And maybe there's a case to be made that he really was that close to these dudes. He was a trusted non-expert advisor but it's super annoying that all of those all of those famous photographs of jfk and rfk standing out on the breezeway outside of the oval office with their hands in their pockets sitting and talking about stuff (laughs) all those all those photographs have been recreated in this movie except with costner standing between them (laughs) <laughs> it feels very Forrest Gumpy when you go through these moments and you see that weird third added to added to these these scenes, right? Yeah. You're right. They're, they're so familiar when you see the the guys out there throwing the old pigskin around. Like, who's this other guy? What's he doing here? Who's this main guy? Why isn't he president of the United States? Right. <laughs> He's like the Talleyrand of the Kennedy administration. How much of this stuff, Bay of Pigs, um, Cuban Missile Crisis, how much of it do you know, you guys, already? What, how much of it is in your DNA? I saw this movie in the theaters, and um, I think that this was kind of my, like, I don't think Cuban Missile Crisis was something they taught in social studies or whatever when I was in middle school, so. No, they were too busy teaching you that Columbus was a genocidal killer. <laughs> <laughs> they took the Cuban Missile Crisis stuff off the syllabus. syllabus. <laughs> Actually, yeah, well, so I'm trying to think how the years lined up because my junior, no, my sophomore year high school history textbook was People's History of the United States. <laughs> the Howard Zinn book? That explains yeah. wow. so much. <laughs> and so, and, and and like my my history teacher was like a like hi, I'm Dave, your history teacher. I'm a socialist. <laughs> right. <laughs> John, you and I couldn't have done a better job making up a story <laughs> that really, that Ben just admitted was his truth. It really. Oh man, explains. Everything, <laughs> everything. So, but, but I don't think that, um, like, I think we were focused on like further back in the past stuff. Sure. Than, Real colonialism, not this, <laughs> this ginned up 20th century colonialism. This is like, this is like cosplaying colonialism. These guys, these guys only aspire to what the, uh, what the Spaniards accomplished. Right. Uh, I went to public schools and, and learned about this in a proper history class. <laughs> proper. Huh? Right. 
<laughs> as the elder member of of our uh friendly fire clan and the one that is most boomer proximate and uh and let's say just boomer damaged right uh, <laughs> growing up growing up in a world that was still really dominated um by like active duty boomers i feel like by the time ben you were in your 20s the boomers had lost their vitality they were all starting to take like erectile dysfunction drugs at that point and yeah, they they were still drawing the biggest salaries at all their companies, but not like yeah. really super focused on anything. They were using the money on side by side bathtubs with their partners, <laughs> right? <laughs> but you know, when I was in my when I was in my teens and twenties, the Boomers were in charge of FM radio. I mean, they were like they were so omnipresent, and so the the Cuban Missile Crisis and Bay of Pigs and the 60s and Vietnam and all that stuff it was just it was it was still in the newspapers every day because because everything that happened to the boomers seemed to them to be the only things that ever mattered in history or they were the culmination of history and and that was the education climate that I went to school under right where it was just like wow the Cuban missile crisis like everything turned on it and now, you know, like my daughter, my, my daughter asked me the other day, who's on the nickel? And I said, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> and she said, was he a president? And I was like, damn it. She doesn't know who Thomas Jefferson is. Like we're, we're into a different universe, right? She's never going to know who McGeorge Bundy is. <laughs> She'll never need to. But for some reason, like I do. Yeah. I thought it was because he was your brother. Does it haunt you that you're sending your daughter to a Benjamin... Our Harrison school. You see what's happening here, right? Well, I mean, I sat down and gave her a four-hour lesson on Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> you need a responsible adult in the room if you're going to give your kid a socialist education. The John Roderick <laughs> history class that starts with Thomas Jefferson and ends with McGeorge Bundy. <laughs> <laughs> Something I feel like we're, we're depriving our school-aged children of in this country. I would audit that class right now. It's a 300-level class. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, Ben? You and I are taking it at this moment. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Watching this movie in the theaters in the year 2000, we were going through that period, you know, the post-Oliver uh, Stone, JFK era of of a revisionist take on all this stuff. Like, let's go back through it. Let's relive it all again. And, uh, and just, you know, put the camera places that, that there weren't cameras before, or at least not cameras we had access to. The back into the left wing revision of history. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so wa watching it at the time, you know, being in the room and feeling how fraught uh, those few days were, how, how much Kennedy was surrounded by people advising him, that there was only one course of action and that was to go to war. I remember, you know, being pretty gripped by this movie in the theater and feeling like I'd never fully appreciated how, uh, how high the stakes were. Yeah. Like I, after seeing path to war, the stakes in that felt super high as well, but like they're incalculably higher in this. And I think Bruce Greenwood's performance is one of a man who is really overwhelmed by, the decision that's in front of him 
but it's a movie where the president kind of outfoxes the military machine in a way that Path to War is not. Like, there's a lot of similar themes where it's like, it seems like these uh, Joint Chiefs guys are really kind of stacking the deck so that this goes off and triggers an armed conflict. And they find a way around that in this movie. If you're constructing a tension that is built around being outnumbered in the way that the story does, why would you add a superfluous person to that? Like, why do we need an intermediary to help us understand what's happening between the Kennedys at this moment? I feel like removing O'Donnell would would increase the tension that this film is trying to to orchestrate. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Ted Sorensen, the speechwriter, was there for a lot of that stuff, and and you could Costner could have been Sorensen and just put himself in the room when Sorensen was in the room. I, I It really did not need to be a star vehicle for him. I feel like this isn't the truth, but I feel like Costner looked at this movie and he was like, he wanted to be Kennedy. He wanted to be Kennedy so bad, but his accent was so shitty that we're like, we can't make this movie with you as Kennedy. And Costner's like, well, what do you want me to do, man? I mean, I guess I can be this third guy as long as he's the main guy. And here we are. This should be Bruce Greenwood's film to own. All by himself, because I think he's, and what you were saying, Ben, I, he's so interestingly portrayed in this film, and I think Bruce Greenwood is great at him. I wanted more of him. Quit distracting me with O'Donnell. Yeah, you, you want Kennedy to be alone. Yeah. His brother, Robert, also was kind of hawkish in this moment. JFK didn't have a lot of people in his corner that they didn't run all these numbers and come to the ine- inevitable conclusion that they were that we were going to have to invade Cuba or we were going to have to drop some bombs and if we were going to drop some bombs we had to go all the way cuz then we were going to be fighting over Berlin and pretty soon it was all over and what Kennedy didn't have was a 45-year-old Kevin Costner <laughs> standing there telling him how everything was going to go but he, he's got like city miles on him, though. He's got that like, I've been in the administration and I'm my hair is prematurely going gray mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> they talk about that, right? Like like looking at old pictures of Lincoln, like woof. Being president really took it out of Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Lincoln famously good looking before becoming president. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I love about Stephen Culp's performance as Bobby Kennedy is how often his mouth is open when he's not talking. Like so many of the photographs of RFK, I feel like he's always mid-speech or mouth open. Like I don't feel like RFK was known as a mouth breather of a person, but it helps you like it helps you believe that that's who you're seeing in this movie in such an interesting and subtle way. I like that choice that he makes. As a, as a counterpoint to that, I hope, Ben, that you're with me in this camp. Oh, come on. Look at you recruiting already. Witness tampering. No, no, no. This is, <laughs> this is just, you know, this is this is little sidebar Ben and I have sometimes, Adam, where, you know, you're welcome to listen. <laughs> oh, thank you. But I don't expect you to contribute. But I found the tailoring in this movie to be an abomination. Absolutely awful 
you know, these guys were all wearing sack suits, right? That was the, that was, right. they brought sack suits to the world, These this crew. They went shopping at, uh, at J Press, J Press, right, the day before they, they uh, went to the inauguration and got their guy sworn in, right? But RFK's suits fit so badly. His jackets were always the wrong size. Kenny O'Donnell's jackets were tailored in this way that every time he raised his arms up, the, like, lapels got all crazy pinched his his collars weren't tailored right these guys were some of the best tailored dudes in history the ties were wrong i can't believe they got it wrong it was so important i mean you could have made this movie with good tailoring and i wouldn't have even paid attention to the plot i would have just been looking <laughs> i would have just been admiring the way their shirts fit and instead every time somebody was on on screen and like raised their arm and their jacket had this crazy gap i was like what am i what kind of made for television shit is this hey i kind of want to turn this into a film paper john and my paper goes like do you believe that how tormented the kennedys are takes a hit if they are impeccably dressed in this movie versus looking a little vaguely unkempt in a way that that may give you a visual cue as to how disheveled their thoughts might be about things during this time like like does it add to an overall feeling about them as characters if they aren't looking fucking amazing during well here's my counter to that first of all in reality in actual fact they looked amazing during this it was precisely how tailored they were, how, how sort of smart and chic they were, that caused Khrushchev to underestimate them, that caused uh, LeMay to underestimate them. Like, Khrushchev famously said that Kennedy was too intellectual, he was too intelligent to be decisive. And... You know, a year before this, they screwed up the Bay of Pigs so badly. Kennedy was, you know, fickle and waffled on it, and they got their asses handed to them, and it was a massive embarrassment, and it caused Khrushchev to to feel like to feel like he could put missiles in Cuba. He didn't care about Cuba, but what what Khrushchev wanted was Berlin, and he knew, or he felt like he knew, that he would put these missiles in Cuba, that Kennedy would get flustered and in the process what what khrushchev would get was concessions in berlin like he would you know they would trade cuba for berlin or whatever and lemay and all of those uh all the 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 brass felt the same way about kennedy that he was that he would he didn't have the guts he didn't have the guts to follow through on bay of pigs he didn't have the guts to attack cuba when when he should have I mean, they kept after Bay of Pigs, they kept coming up with schemes to invade Cuba. Uh, you couldn't have Latin America go communist. It was like it was like fundamental to the Monroe Doctrine. You couldn't have communists uh, <laughs> like what, 50 miles off the coast of the United States. The fact that Kennedy and, and RFK were so cute and their ties fit so well really played into how little respect anybody had for them. Hmm. So the counterpoint to my argument that by looking rumpled, you're you're made to 
believe in their underdoggedness in a way, like you're you're cued visually for that. You're saying that that the film would have served served these characters more by by actually tailoring the suits and making them look more capable than they were. I might have a take on this. I, uh, this is a, a, maybe a stretch as a film paper, but when this movie came out, I feel like the language communicated by a well-tailored suit had really changed in the culture. And I think that like a really great suit was kind of synonymous with the man and maybe maybe the suits and and the clothes in general are meant to communicate something to the Christmas Day premiere year 2000 audience that came out to see this film that maybe like was kind of different from what was being communicated in the 60s. Maybe, but you know, if I'm boomer damaged, that Costner has spent his entire life wanting to be in the White House in 1962. Yeah. And in putting himself there, I can't believe that he would have missed the opportunity to, to go to go full bore uh, <laughs> with the with the freaking tab collars. But, I, but Adam, I do think that the movie hints at it several times. The, the movie hints at the historicity of a few different things. Like, can't, we never talk about Kennedy's physical ailments, but his rocking chair is a, is a main character in the film. And we see him take a couple, we t- a couple of handfuls of pills, uh, and the camera actually kind of zooms in on one handful of pills at one time. You know, that's all like a real signaling an awareness of Kennedy's, the fact that he was in constant pain through all of this. We see him struggling to fuck a bunch of <laughs> gangsters, women on the side. Like Look, those are sad scenes. I don't know scenes. about you, but I'm willing. If I, when I am when I'm banging a gangster's mall, yeah. a lot of a lot of my pain, I'm able to forget about for a couple yeah. of hours. You know what I mean? Nothing acts quite as fast as a guma. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but the, but the film does also hint at the fact and, 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 and it's not a hint, but the characters in the film talk about themselves being the smart ones several different times. Yeah. We got a lot of smart guys in this, in this administration. We should lock them in a room and kick them in the butt. Yeah. Hey, I'm a smart guy. You're a smart guy. We're all smart guys. That's a hat tip to the, the perception in their own time of them being the best and the brightest. The movie didn't quite uh, explore the degree to which they were because of that, because that was their self image the degree to which they were underestimated or held in contempt by the rest of the establishment, military and political. Uh, and that's, that's something the movie kind of left unexplored. We don't, we never hear or see Khrushchev or all, you know, we get like a couple of messages through diplomatic back channels from him, but you know, Khrushchev's a major character in this movie. We just never meet him. Yeah, it's got some like sports movie elements to it, right? Like the like, oh, they beat us this round, but we're gonna come back and get them next round. Like, I, I felt like the Adlai Stevenson at the UN scene, yeah, felt like 
fans in a fans watching a game on television kind of like yeah he got him Woo! like a like a pitcher that's getting lit up and the manager's about ready to call the bullpen like that yeah i thought that scene was really well done it was great like the structure of it is kind of amazing right because it is it's the same problem that path to war has is like here are 80 scenes of people yelling at each other in wood paneled rooms in the white house how do you make like an interesting story arc out of that? And uh, it just somehow really works with this particular story. I love the euphoria of a great presentation after that Adlai Stevenson moment, because like <laughs> the music swells and the applause begins like when the camera uh, pans over to the slides that they begin to unfold and put on the... He has visual aids! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a moment. Gentlemen, if you will observe in The thing, especially about that, that feels very sports movie-ish is like when we do things that are provocative to the Russians in this movie, there are two like like nuclear weapons tests that the U.S. performs. And it, and it like both times it smash cuts back to the Oval Office where Kennedy's like, who authorized it? Who did it? And, <laughs> and it's like infuriating to think that like there's somebody under the level of president that can be like, hey, um, you know what? Let's uh, let's bomb an atoll in the South Pacific and just see how that goes right now. You know, I really love the paranoia of those scenes. Like it, it felt manipulative within the context of the film because you're getting these interstitials a lot. I think the film even begins with uh, atomic bomb testing footage. Yeah. But but the idea of like the lie of control that this president feels like he has over the situation is just represented over and over again by by like I thought we were running things from this room with these people and now I'm hearing about bomb tests in the South Pacific like it's insane making for him because there is no control and it's our team doing something bad and the movie like treats it as a like an inconvenience for the good guys that that it's bad you know right like from the russian perspective that is like a major escalation of the tensions yeah from anybody from anybody's perspective can you imagine it's like oh shit the fingers are on the trigger like we're seconds away from war oh and now we just blew up a freaking megaton oh, now we're testing missiles over over turkey like what are we doing I think it's important to remember that in 1962, all of that military establishment, everybody involved, including including JFK himself, they were all World War II veterans. And a lot of, like Curtis LeMay, this was an era when like the generals were also rock stars, right? Like LeMay was the guy that basically founded the Air Force. So he's famous and he's sitting in the room with the president and he's got his own basically doctrine named after him. Like the whole, the whole concept of what a first strike against the Russians would be didn't exist before him. So Kennedy isn't just arguing against a bunch of officers that are kind of there at his discretion. You know, you want to think like, why didn't Kennedy fire LeMay? Why didn't he fire Herbert Hoover? You know, why didn't he come in and just say, 
All these guys have been in these jobs for too long. Hoover has been in charge of the FBI for too long. I'm the president. I'm starting over. But he didn't because each one of these guys, they they were like little czars of their of the mini empires. Well, it's also something that uh, LBJ deals with in Path to War is that like he mostly kept the the cabinet as constituted and and is then stuck with people that he like wouldn't have picked himself. So it sort of it sort of compounds by the time he's in the Oval Office. What's crazy about this? The craziest thing about this is that we now know that in 1962, the entire Soviet Union had something on the order of 10 intercontinental ballistic missiles. They had a submarine force that could not launch nukes. The whole business of putting these missiles on Cuba would have represented the only real way that they could have delivered nukes to the United States. If, if they had actually launched a strike, if they had uh, invaded Cuba and, and uh, neutralized these missiles, there would have been no Russian hail of nukes. Uh, but we didn't know that at the time, right? That's the thing that it's arguable. Because there's a moment, I think, where LeMay says, like, they're, they're putting these nukes here and them having the ability to nuke us is intolerable. So we've got to invade Cuba because the only way they could escalate would be by nuking us and they would never contemplate that. And that's like there's circularity to that logic. It like doesn't actually work, you know, like if the threat is that they're going to nuke us, but also they couldn't contemplate nuking us, then what are we talking about? I think he might have been saying uh, the threat of them nuking us is that this is the only threat of them nuking us. And if we yeah. eliminate them, then they don't have, there is no threat of them nuking us. I don't know uh, how much we were capable of deluding ourselves uh, and the, and the military industrial complex capable of not just dishonestly deluding us, but collectively deluding itself. Um, but you know, that's what we, that's what we were paying a freaking CIA to do, right? Mm, yeah. I mean, contemporarily, it, it, this answers the question, what you're talking about answers the question, like, what constitutes a nuclear deterrent? What number is that? The answer is one. You know, this is why we try so hard to prevent countries from developing these weapons, even one of them. Jesus Christ, we're lighting off nuclear weapons like it's our own private 4th of July. Well, that's also something that I thought was a little bit confusing about this movie was that there's there's that letter, the the Khrushchev letter that they're like, finally, we have like a reasonable like offer and we can like make a deal with Khrushchev. And then there's another subsequent letter that seems to negate that and then they're like well you know and also we're pretty sure that they have a lot more nukes in cuba than we had originally uh we had originally thought there's frogs there's longer range things that could hit everything but seattle and that's all like stated and then they're like well let's just ignore everything we learned after the first letter and go back to that as the negotiating point which like, I was personally very attracted to as a conflict-averse person. Like, let's just pretend they didn't say the mean things and, like, engage with the nice things. <laughs> Every email exchange we've ever had with Max Fun. <laughs> we didn't reply with the mean reply, right, guys? <laughs> <laughs> 
wait a minute, I didn't send that, did I? No, I don't think so. <laughs> this mail program is really confusing. But like, were there other bombs or was that all bullshit that LeMay was injecting into the conversation that wasn't true? No, they were bringing, they were bringing short and medium range missiles into Cuba, partly because, well, those were the missiles that they, they knew could work, right? I mean, an ICBM is a multi-stage missile and it requires to get from the Soviet Union to the United States effectively, it has to basically go up into space and come back down again. Whereas a, you know, a, a short range or medium range missile is just a single stage rocket. You light it, point it, and, you know, easier to make, easier to, cheaper to build. Um, and so these were missiles that they knew worked. And putting them in Cuba was basically like we were doing with, with Polaris submarines. We were just, you just go park it off the coast somewhere. So that was, that was the strategy. I mean, the Cuban revolution was only in 59. Castro had only been there a couple of years. And Castro wasn't, I don't think Castro was a born socialist. Castro when he, when he first, when the Cuban revolution first happened, he came on a big tour of the United States and was like, Hey, my American friends, you know, he wasn't allied with the Soviet sphere. It was only after we rejected him that Khrushchev said, like, I'll be your friend. And this was part of that process. Like, Hey, well, like Castro didn't necessarily want Soviet missiles in Cuba because he didn't want to be a puppet of the Russians. Did you read that story that McNamara visited Castro and they were they were chopping up the missile crisis conversationally and McNamara really steps in it. He's like, "Isn't it just good to know that neither side would have ever like nuked the other? Like we can we can all agree on that." And Castro's like, "I was so ready to shoot and our missiles were fueled and ready to shoot and I was willing to accept mutually assured destruction in that moment. Wow. Uh, and and McNamara like gets blown back in the seat a little bit like <laughs> does I'll, not compute. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. fantastic. That's fantastic. Ah, they're not so bad. They even named the street after me in San Francisco. I think we're fairly unkind with the idea of O'Donnell being so instrumental in this film, but as a performance what was your take on Costner as O'Donnell? I knew Ken O'Donnell. I worked alongside Ken O'Donnell <laughs> and you, sir. <laughs> I didn't think the accent was that good. Frankly, it, it kind of felt like it came in and out. Yeah, the accent's not great, but I feel like the the weight of it is great. And I, I think it's kind of an interesting main character that is like the guy that's trying to help the guy that's actually doing the hard thing like it's kind of it's kind of like making robin the main character of a batman movie hmm i need a name bat boy nightwing i don't know what do you think like that is filmmaking on hard mode and and i mean i think that there are problems with this film but i think it like overall works and like those calls he makes to like the guys that are going to be flying the surveillance missions over Cuba and stuff. Like you really feel like how frightened he is in those moments. I like those moments a lot. I like Costner in them for that reason. What I did not 
like so much was everything having to do with his family. <laughs> you're just you're just anti-family though. Don't give me that Spielbergian what's wrong with daddy ending here. Like it's so unnecessary. I just see a family of this size and I like can't even wrap my mind around it. <laughs> and I think it's just because of like the cultural context right. I'm from where I have only ever lived in very expensive cities. Like nobody I know has had a kid before you know like I've, i have like one friend who had a kid before he turned 30 and and the idea of having five kids is just unimaginable to most of the people in my age cohort and and like the place i live I, like how do, how do you even afford it it's important <laughs> to remember that when you were born your mother and father both held you up so that the the sun's rays struck your little golden face and said we have <laughs> made a perfect child we need no others. <laughs> we will raise this one to adulthood and, and then fade away. We'll take a boat to the other lands. Why is it that Kenny's the one with the shitty grades, but he's the son that, that O'Donnell goes and visits with his free time? He goes home like twice in the entire movie to see his wife. Maybe Kenny needs a little bit more encouragement. He's the oldest boy, meaning he's the only important child. The rest of them are just... <laughs> One of them's going to be a priest, I guess. One of them's going to be a wife of somebody. Who cares? It's the He's, oldest son that matters. The role of Catholicism is very interesting in this movie. Like that mm. that it's like an important like pause in the middle. Like let's pause the nuclear crisis and go to church is a is a real mood. It is. Well, the church is around the corner from the embassy, right? They uh they just took a little scenic route there. But also like when Ken O'Donnell is calling those those pilots, you know, he yeah. he takes great comfort in knowing that that one guy is a religious man. That was the one part of this uh, these events that I think when I saw this movie the first time, I did not realize that a U-2 pilot had been shot down during the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's not part of the story that gets told widely. I mean, talk about escalation. Those, those uh, nuke tests that were happening out in... Uh, a bikini atoll somewhere incredible provocation but the fact that they actually sammed a, a u2 and we didn't and and somehow lemay and his crew didn't succeed in using that as a pretext to start the war that and and at least the way this movie makes it seem that's o'donnell and the kennedys conspiring to make sure that even if someone is shot down they're not shot down that's not what we're calling it. Yeah, that you two ran into 70,000-foot sparrows. Yeah, right. Would it surprise you to know that the U-2 remains in service as like a frontline reconnaissance aircraft? I know NASA uses them. Do they still use them in the Air Force? Yeah, it's incredible. They uh, There's an episode of Mythbusters where they uh, were, um, I think Adam Savage is the one that that goes up in one and he like has to train for like weeks to do it. No. Wow. Because it's like, because like even being the second seat in a U2 is like no joke. There's like little, little training wheels that they have to put on the ends of the wings because mm -hmm. they're floppy and would touch the ground when they, when you're like getting ready to take off. Yeah. There's the, the SR 71 effect where the seals are loose uh, at sea level, but everything tightens up as the plane rises in altitude. I actually uh, found a very interesting uh, pedantic quibble about the pilots in this movie that I thought I'd share with you guys. 
Um, the flying suits worn by Commander Ecker's Navy photo recon air crews are completely devoid of name tags, rank, aviator wings, and unit patches. In 1962, the suits would have had all of these items attached. Quote, sanitized flying suits did not appear till later in the 60s. Hmm. This is so interesting, right? Like, I guess if you're a pilot that goes down and wants some, like, plausible deniability, you don't want that. Right. But also if you're like if you're like impossible space plane is what you bailed out of, like they would know. Impossible space plane? Whose impossible yeah. space plane is this? I don't know. <laughs> Not me. That's kind of what I was hoping to get to with that moment of pedantry. <laughs> I uh, I wanted to say uh, again, plane nerd style. We see some F eight crusaders in this movie. And that's another one of those airplanes that we don't see enough movies about crusaders. They were in their day, like the fastest plane out there. Back when interceptor was the, was the primary mission. Yeah. We just don't get enough of it. And this movie gives us some, some low level high speed crusader flights that, uh, that were very, very gratifying. It's a fast airplane. They're pretty neat. They look a little bit to me like the uh, airplane in last week's movie, the the Intruder. I guess it's that under the nose uh, jet intake that's that's giving that effect. I think that is the thing that makes the F eight an ugly looking aircraft to me. It like <laughs> wow. if to the to the extent that an aircraft has a face, I do not like the face of the F eight. It looks like it's it's just screaming with that big open mouth intake. <laughs> don't like it like all this stuff with the the ships at sea was really interesting i i didn't see this movie having that mode of like cut to destroyer like maintaining the barricade and and trying to stop these russian ships it does kind of make it seem like the uss pierce is the only ship that is like doing the quarantine <laughs> because it's always the one that's going to intercept the russian ships but it's it's fun to see I love what a problem that submarine presents in that moment. Like what a what a multiplication of the issue totally. a submarine does. God. I kind of thought that they were going to ask that ship to like say to just go like, you know, you might get you might get sunk and that will suck. Yeah. The other thing that is sort of set up at the beginning of this is we don't know if these are operational yet and I kept expecting them to do, you know, to to stop a Russian ship and board it and find a bunch of like cores or warheads yeah. or whatever. And that's not, that's never a thing. This movie is not like, does not clean up after itself. We don't see the UN inspected drawdown or anything. Yeah. Where's that movie? The movie where they <laughs> load them up and ship them out. One of my favorite characters in the film is a pilot of one of those F8s we were talking about. When Commander Ecker returns from his F-8 mission over Cuba, uh, the ground crew notices that his plane has been shot to pieces. And Ecker, remembering that phone call with O'Donnell, uh, says that what they did was they flew into a flock of sparrows. And his wingman is not really great at, like, improv. Yeah, he got kicked out of the groundlings. (laughs) He's not taking the cue until he finally does. Uh, I think Ecker does his damnness to sell it to his his wingman at least. 
Uh, no one really believes it, but that's the way it is, guys, says Ecker. And, and that's where the story ends for him. I think like Ecker convincing the flight line that uh, all of those bullet holes were sparrows, us, the assembled hosts of Friendly Fire, are going to have to decide if this film convinced us of its value as a war film. So on a scale of one to five sparrows, let's decide that. I think in order to like a film like this, you shouldn't have to like Kevin Costner being in it. But it makes you, it like it forces you into that decision. If you like the movie, you're going to like Costner's character. If you don't, I have a feeling that's a big reason why. And having O'Donnell as the main character of a Cuban Missile Crisis movie is like doing a Beatles movie from Ringo's perspective. Give me all of the Kennedys. Get O'Donnell out of here. The best part of this movie is the conflict between the Hawks and the Kennedys, and I don't think we need O'Donnell in there translating that to us. What is he really doing there? The thing that works, that argument between what's tough and what's right, and you hear this all the time from the Joint Chiefs, right? They're saying the Kennedys aren't tough enough to make the right decision, and that being thoughtful is a weakness for the Kennedys. And I thought that was very interestingly put. I don't know if this is a film that succeeds in in making us feel a certain way. Like, I don't know, it, it shows us this and it tells us this, but there's too much noise to that signal to really hit for me in a way that I think that it should. Maybe the way that it works best is presenting the idea of how difficult it must be to like do that mental gymnastics of like, there's the moment of the two letters, Ben, that you were talking about where, you know, if we don't like the contents of the second letter, maybe we just go with the first one. And like the main point of that entire moment was like interrogating the difference between what a person wants you to think and what you think they want you to think. It's crazy making. (laughs) I think you're supposed to come out of this film believing that these people save the world. And I believe that that's true. I believe that the movie believes it. But I think a better film tells this story better. And I think that movie is out there. I don't think we've seen it yet. I think it's capable, but capable isn't good enough. And capable isn't what makes movies great. So I'm going to give it three sparrows. Hmm. I think I liked it more than you did. There's some hand of the filmmaker things in this movie that I didn't understand. Like this film will cut to black and white occasionally for a while until it gets tired of being black and white and then fades back to color. Did you ever know why it was doing that? I couldn't, I couldn't pick up on what it was trying to tell me in those, in those moments at all. And I puzzled about it, but not for long because I was always caught back up in what was happening in the movie i was i was there for it and i think i can forgive the fact that kenny o'donnell was rewritten as a larger part of the history of this because i did like kevin costner and i did like the the movie and i i think i'm gonna give it four sparrows do you guys notice that there were all those nuclear blasts at the beginning and then, like, occasionally we'd cut to one when there was, like, a test. But then at the end, it looks like a nuclear blast, but it's actually the sun. 
but then you remember the sun is also a nuclear blast. Whoa! The sun came up. Y'all. Using the nuclear explosions as uh, segue pieces, the problem was they weren't used consistently. Like, if we had cut to that bomb every time it was sort of the end of the day and the next thing we were anticipating was the beginning of the war, if we did that three or four times and then the last time we saw it, it was the sun coming up in the morning. Like, yeah, okay. I, I could have gotten with that rhythm. But the movie opens on those explosions kind of the way, the same way. It's like an inverse of the way um, Strange Love ends. Yeah. But then we see that we see a nuke go off a couple of times, but it always signifies something different. And it's not it's not a coherent uh, motif. And that stuff gets in the way for me. But I think most importantly, Adam said it best, which is you're going to have Kennedy and RFK saying things they actually said in moments where history actually turned on those words. And then you're going to basically put a new character in the form of a guy that both RFK and JFK, two of the most famously arrogant men in the world, we're going to put another guy in there that they both respect and look up to and allow interrupt them. Like my dad knew RFK and worked for JFK a couple of years before the events of this film. And my dad hated RFK. He said Bobby was an imperious, violent brat and in this movie bobby is like like a charming collie who just can't wait for kevin costner to say another thing it's not necessary i wanted to see this movie with kevin costner in it as kennedy or whoever he wanted to be have him be in this movie have him play jackie just not invent a guy that happened to like following RFK into the bathroom to, to decide what, what we're really going to do. I could never get past the distraction of it. And I loved the, I loved a lot of the performances. I loved the way that it stuck pretty close to the, to the actual story. I just couldn't get, I couldn't get past the fact that this was an amusement park ride for a famous actor who just wanted to put himself in history. Oof. And so I'm with Adam. I think it's a three. I was wincing too much. What's the best Cuban Missile Crisis movie? It's a blast from the past starring <laughs> Alicia Silverstone. <laughs> uh huh. John, who's your guy? I think I've established a, uh, a theme, which is that any movie in which McGeorge Bundy appears, McGeorge Bundy go. is my guy. Yeah. I'm always going to pick McGeorge Bundy when he when he arrives on the screen. I've yet to see the McGeorge Bundy movie that I want to see. McGeorge Bundy always is appearing as a as a, you know, a bit character in these other men's dramas, but where is the life of McGeorge? Hello? McGeorge? <laughs> <laughs> Anybody home? <laughs> ben, what about you? Um, there's a scene where they're like, uh, they order the destroyer to, uh, to fire torpedoes at the, at the Russian submarine. 
and it cuts down to the deck as some uh, as some navy guys are are loading the deck mounted uh, torpedo launchers, and one of them says, "Watch your fingers." Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of finger trauma at the hands of, uh, you know, depth charge launchers and torpedo launchers. And, you know, just uh, like I feel like uh, like being careful about hand safety on a Navy ship is is uh, is maybe our highest priority. So I really appreciated that guy. And he was my guy. Good guy. Uh, We frequently see atomic test footage in movies and then we also see that b-roll of uh of what society does there's the going into uh their bunkers there's the classroom scene where everyone's ducking and covering and there is always a student in the classroom that catches my eye it feels like there are very few clips of the classroom doing duck and cover because i always find her she is the girl that as everyone is getting under their desks, accidentally puts her head down on her desk instead of getting uh-huh. beneath it. It's a form of line anxiety, I feel like. When you practice a thing over and over again and then it's time to do the thing, your brain kind of short circuits into into fucking up that moment. And that little girl that puts her head on her desk instead of getting underneath it is like that embodiment. <laughs> And I and my eye finds her every time we see this clip. This clip has been in a bunch of movies, but like she's my guy. Like it's time to do the thing you've practiced, and you like you just short circuit in the moment. She's no Bert the turtle. Yeah, she's a pile of ash, whereas all of her schoolmates are covered with painful blisters. John, you never feel anxious before the die roll, right? You always know just what to do. Uh, no. In fact, it's never clear whether the die roll is going to go off without a hitch or whether, um, or whether the die roll is going to be a total unmitigated disaster. But here we go. Are you guys ready? Ready to pick our movie for next ep? We're ready. Here we go. 120 sided die. Sixty-eight. <laughs> the neighbor of nice. Uh, number sixty-eight is a movie about, I guess, the troubles in Northern Ireland. It's from nineteen ninety-seven and directed by Alan Pacula. It's The Devil's Own, hmm. starring Brad Pitt and Harrison Ford. Oh, we know Harrison Ford. In uh, in battle with the IRA, yeah, and we know Brad Pitt can do a passable, weird Irish accent. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Do you think when the director is called to set, you always have to invite Pacula into it? <laughs> Pacula only shoots at night. <laughs> Who put garlic on the crash service table? Ah ah ah! Wow. I'm I'm excited for this movie. Real loaded cast. Yeah, I remember seeing this in theaters, but I don't really remember anything about it. But uh, I am excited to check it out. So uh, that'll be next week on Friendly Fire. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Absolutely. Yes. Listen to me. 
Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music, and our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. Last year at this time, your hosts reviewed one of the ultimate Boat Dad movies. They were Expendable, from 1945, starring John Wayne. Check it out if you haven't heard that episode already, or revisit it if you're a seasoned listener. Feel like supporting our show? Well, you can do that by heading to MaximumFun.org join. And for as little as $5 a month, not only will you receive our Pork Chop bonus feed, you'll gain access to all Maximum Fun bonus content. And don't forget, you can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles FriendlyFireRSS. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of Friendly Fire. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.